Right, welcome back to my podcast, Steve Basali Study. Um, listen, loads of my, well, loads of my podcasts recently have been, many people are, people that I met over the Gumball Rally had Sean Wright Phillips in today who I played, had the privilege of uh, playing football with. Um, I've got so many others lined up, including Bumby and countless others. And the guy I've been on his case for such a long time now, for the last few weeks, ever since I got back from the Gumball Rally, is this gentleman from the Cuban Brothers, Michael Keat. So thank you very much, sir, for your time. And I'm looking forward to this podcast episode. Pleasure, Steve. Pleasure. It's nice, uh, nice to be here. And I appreciate your uh, temerity in uh, getting this one away because it's been a... Uh, you know, I mean, fairly difficult to get a hold of properly. It's a busy time, but yeah, man, I, uh, you, the proverbial dog with a stick, and I, uh, I salute you. <laughs> I salute <laughs> you. I salute you for being, uh, for being keen as mustard and for pushing it through. So here we well, are. I, I tell you what, I always say the same thing to uh, you know, friend, family, or anyone asks me about the podcast. They they say, how do you get like quite a lot of good high profile profile high-profile people on the podcast. And so I've got a very, very simple strategy. I completely persist until we get one or two answers. They either say yes or they tell me to fuck off. And, and, and either way, for me, that's a success because then I can move on. Yeah, good man. Good man. Well, as, as I say, I commend, <laughs> I commend you on that, <laughs> on that philosophy. And I think, I think it's working for you. So good stuff, mate. <laughs> it certainly is. Now, look, without blowing smoke at your backside, I've got to be honest, mate. Every time I spoke to you, every time I watched you perform, mate, you're, you're, you've got so much like energy, positivity <laughs> oozing from you. It's almost like it feels like a natural kind of thing. It probably isn't. You probably work really hard at it, but you just do it so easily. And you're just like... <laughs> A comedian, a showman, a performer, an MC, a singer, a body popper, a break dancer. I mean, this this stuff that I feel like you could do everything. But I tell you what, my respect for you went up another level just today. I tell you why. David Brent, Life on the Road. You featured in that, right? Yeah. I am a massive, massive, massive David Brent fan, and when I saw that you was a part of that. I was yeah. like, mate, this is this is brilliant. So, like, if I can start with that, then David Brent, Life on the Road. How'd you get that part in in that particular movie? <coughs> um, I think I got asked to come in by. Um, I think I got it was uh, what's her name? It's a uh, there's a woman. I've done a few films, right? So I've done about a dozen films uh, from you know, um, sort of Plan B's first movie, which was you might have seen that, which is uh, called. Uh, Ill Manners, which is uh, yeah. quite, a hard, quite a hardcore movie, not not really a date night movie, uh, and and you know I, I played a part in uh, played a part of Bronco in the film uh, Sunshine on Leaf, uh, yeah. which uh, you know De Dexter Fletcher's film, and I was in you know uh, Cuban Fury with Nick Frost and Rotten Romans and all that kind of thing. But this one in particular is uh, um, yeah, I got a, I got, got a call from David's. Thing, made the casting and just said would you, would you like to come in we thought you'd be good for this and I did and came in and I was uh, yeah got it and then but <laughs> it's the very first scene in the movie and it got cut and so effectively I got the part and we did the scene and the scene's maybe about I don't know six seven minutes long and uh, it's not really being used so I have the kudos of being in the film but it often happens it's never happened to me before uh, but it often happens that, you know, when, when they come to cutting it and editing it, 
there simply isn't enough time or the scene doesn't play as well with the next scene. There's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Of course, at the time, I was like a little bit like, oh, for fuck's sake. You know, is it me? Uh, you know, I, mean, I, thought, I thought it went really well. Uh, but that's obviously any, anyone who's an entertainer, anyone who's an actor, they, you know, they're always going to have those little sort of, um, you know, misgivings like, oh, it might be a fucked up. <laughs> but I was I was assured that it was nothing to do with me. It was to do with, you know, the, the, but yeah. So that was that one. Uh, it's the only time it's happened to me. But yeah, uh, it was a buzz to work with Ricky. And um, obviously I love the character. And um, yeah, the character is extraordinary, isn't it? It's, 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 you know, arguably, you know, one of the most iconic British comedy characters of the past, uh, you know, two decades. And so, but yeah, that 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 happened. So, although I, it's the very first scene, I played the I played the head of RCA Records, the guy who's not going to sign him, and uh, and we sort of we have a bit of a back and forward, but it got cut. So that's oh. that's the story with that. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, testament to the fact that you're 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 you know you are where you are. You're a very successful man. You're you're touring the world. You're doing your thing, and I think it's a life lesson as well. Like even even when you're pursuing greatness, which you are, there's obviously going to be certain elements in your life that may not always go to plan. But look, even to meet Ricky Gervais, I mean, I've got a wish list. I've got a goals list for my podcast, and he's definitely on there. Uh, to be honest, it would be more so David Brent I would like to interview than Rick, <laughs> Ricky Gervais. I mean, yeah. when I when I started watching The Office um, many years back, I didn't really understand it. I was only a little boy and my dad was watching it and he was cracking up and I was watching the screen thinking, I don't really understand this. Many years later, I revisited it and oh my God, my, my whole entire... I, I would say the back back half of my personality has been built up on that particular character. <laughs> he is so layered, so funny, and I think it's timeless. I think in thirty years from now, we're still going to find it funny. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think so. I think so. It's a great, it's a great character, and you know. And I think he really, yeah, he struck gold. He struck gold when they came up with that with him and the and the big man. It was a uh, brilliant writing. Yeah, and a good and a really good character. Uh, and yeah. Ricky, Ricky, of course, is yeah, he's a legend. I think when I used to work with Sasha Baron Cohen, um, like we did a few things together at the same time when he had the eleven o'clock show, and Ricky was Ricky was the stand-up on that. And I always thought that his comedy back then, we're going back twenty years ago, maybe no longer, going twenty-two years ago. I always thought his comedy was a little bit mean-spirited then, uh, and I, so I wasn't really. I wasn't really feeling it, just being perfectly frank with you. Um, I wasn't really feeling it. And, I, you know, I was always in a character comedy, but he was doing stand-up then. I always thought it was a little bit mean-spirited. And then he just basically got better, as, as far as I'm concerned. And so, you know, his stand-up now is, is extraordinary and incredibly thought-provoking, as well as being funny. Uh, but, yeah, I wasn't really... I didn't think much of him initially, because I always thought, oh, there's, you know, it's not a little... It was always a little bit... Do you know what I mean? There was always... It was always like sort of knocking somebody down a wee bit and being a little mm. bit, a little bit mealy mouthed, and then but he he just got better and and now he's uh, as well as we know the guys uh, the guys are, are forced to be reckoned with you know across mm. the board but yeah man it's uh, it's all good and as you see I've I've done a few I've done a few films and and thank you for the uh, thank you for the compliments at the start you know I've been around as an entertainer for a long time and it's very nice of you to to highlight. Uh, these things that yeah but that's that's how I get down you know I've been I've been lucky enough to 
to be able to make a living doing what I love internationally, you know, next year will be 25 years. And so it's great. It's, um, I feel very, I feel very privileged, you know, in that sense that I, I, I've been able to, to be an entertainer, you know, an MC, a dancer, whatever it is, these things that I do um, and, and make a living from it. Uh, it's been, it's been fantastic. And I, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm fairly lucky, I think. Well, luck uh, is, you know, when opportunity meets preparation. That's right. You... That's right. That's right. I was going to say that, but it's true. It says that there's a, but there's a certain amount of cats who, you know, there's also a few, few cats who are genuinely lucky. I might not be one of them, but you know, I've seen this, I've seen some cats who have a fucking bit my my eyebrow touches the back of my neck when I've seen how much fucking money they've made uh, <laughs> and how much how much they've been able to achieve on very little talent. Uh, and that's not and that's not your race, not not at all. But there's been quite a few people I've seen in the in the public eye where I've been like that. Really? <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> um, I love it. So uh, quite naturally, I want to talk about the Cuban brothers. I want to talk about I'm trying to pronounce this right. Your cook, let's call it alien alienness or sorry. Stage name. I'll say that word better. Um, <laughs> Miguel. Mantovani, Miguel Mantovani, yeah, that's it. okay. Miguel now, before, before we talk about you know the stage name and obviously being this character, I was quite you're frozen, quite, frozen. Sorry, I was quite shocked to see. Um, am I am I off frozen now? No, you're 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 good again now, pal. Cool. I was quite shocked to see. Obviously, I, I got to speak to you when we was in the Gumball Rally, but you're obviously from 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 Edinburgh, Scotland. But mm. you were living between the ages of four to eight, then fifteen to eighteen, New Zealand. Yeah. Which that sound, seems a little bit odd to me. So tell me a bit more about your upbringing. <laughs> well, I was uh, sort of, uh, yeah, brought up in, in, in Edinburgh and then I was, I was an illegitimate child. And so, um, you know, I lived with my, my, my mum and my grandparents. My mum was a hairdresser and then a big, uh, lovely big Kiwi gentleman, but very camp Kiwi guy. <laughs> called Big Dave, Big, Big Dave Keat was across working doing what they call in Australasia as the OS, you know, the overseas. And so a lot of cats, you know, they might before they, if, they, if they're going to university or some of them aren't, they're just going to come overseas maybe in their, their 19, 20, 21. Uh, and this was in, the, you know, around the uh, mid 70s. And so he came across and he met my mum and, uh, and you know, he effectively adopted me, you know, and I was living in, in 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 Gilmerton and Morden and so that was that and it was a it was wicked and we it was a nice time we all went back to New Zealand like literally a year later and uh, and I had sort of the sort of formative years of an upbringing there which was fantastic and then came back to the UK uh, when I was uh, I think it was six mm-hmm. and got a uh, not the shit beating out of me, but certainly a hard time. I had long, blonde, curly hair, wee blue eyes, and uh, spoke like this. Oh, hey, good enough to meet you. My name's Mike. Hey, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's pretty choice here. Now that's nice here. And uh, so back in Edinburgh, you know, at this uh, a school built purely from aluminium called Ferniside. They were like, was this? You're this wee guy. Who's this wee poof here? And so <laughs> I had to, uh, I had to assimilate pretty quickly. And uh, so I went to a few, three different schools, not all through, you know, I just, my dad was the publican. So that was his, that was his game. So I was, uh, you know, primary school, I went to like seven different primary schools because we moved about a bit. And, uh, it, you know, I don't see it 
of course, I think looking back on it, it might have been a wee bit, um, you know, a wee bit angst-ridden as you're when you're young. But I think it gave me a good, um, I think it gave me some, you know, good tools for growing up. You know, it's the kind of thing where you can, you know, I can separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, you learn to cement relationships quickly. I yeah. wear, I wear my heart on my sleeve, as you know. We met and I'm like that. Or you're, you're very forward. I can tell you where your heart on your sleeve. I'm like that. I like this guy. That's it. Job done. I mean, I make, I make that decision within fucking twenty seconds. There's no, mm. do you know what I mean? This guy's a good yeah. guy. Uh, if I, if, and it, you know, if it's very rarely negative, but I can spot it if it is, and I'm just like that. I'll just drop my shoulders like that. No, no problem. So, yeah, man, it's um, it, it's a good, it's a good thing. But I think maybe yeah, <laughs> it's not for everybody. I don't think uh, going. I've been to sort of twelve schools in my life, and not all. I wasn't, wow. I wasn't kicked mm-hmm. out of all of them. You know, okay. some some of the later ones I got in a wee bit of bother, but it was never, it was never real bother. It was more sort of minor naughtiness. Which uh, <laughs> working class working class laddies uh, of a certain ilk can get into this type of bother, and you know it's one of them. It's one of them ones. But yeah, now it's um, it's good, and it was good. I went back when I was fifteen, uh, and it, which was a very an unusual time to go and start school again. You know, but again, I looked at it as uh, excuse me, I looked at it as an adventure, and. Um, and it was, and it was, um, it was mental, and it gave me a chance to, it gave me a chance to sort of, um, you know, really open up my mind and open up what what possibilities there could be, you know, yeah. Because it's like, um, you know, I was doing some stuff at fifteen years old. You know, I was traveling the length and breadth of New Zealand with two record boxes hitching, and I hitched the length and breadth of the country playing clubs, some clubs with little ones that were there. And pubs and parties. Uh, I mean, I was almost sixteen, to be honest. I was basically sixteen, I'd say. And I thought I did all that, and I ended up starting a club in New Zealand, or being, um, you know, very involved in a club called the Naked Angel, which was in, in in Wellington, in the capital. And the Naked Angel was sort of one of the first sort of house music rave rave clubs. I mean, it's. You know, this is 1990. They were New Zealand were a little bit behind, although there were some fantastic DJs um, who who are still going, who were my heroes when I when I was there. But yeah, we ran a club called the Naked Angel, um, and I was involved in that. And and then another thing, uh, different different things like different raves and stuff. So it was I come from that place where I, because I was buy I was a DJ already, and I was buying music. So for a reasonably young guy. I was, you know, taking care of uh, taking care of some quite serious business when it came to to dance music around that time. So it was um, it was certainly all a learning curve and and very fun. I mean, I don't know how old you are, so but this is maybe it might just be just before your time. Thirty six years of age, I am. You're thirty six. Yeah. All right, I. It's not it's not too much before your time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I got, look, so like. When I've, I have interviewed a lot of business people and I've interviewed a lot of athletes and a lot of them have been boxers. And the reason why is because I boxed myself, uh, Michael. I've yeah. had 16 fights. Uh, last fight was back in March. And I like to get in the headspace of an athlete because I think that, you know, their winner's mindset can transfer into their business life or their social life or their family's life. I think it there's a lot of complementary traits that you can use in life. 
But with your journey, I've not really come across anyone that has had this kind of business model because you're you're from Edinburgh. You've obviously got this accent. You've developed this. You're part of this group called the Cuban Brothers, and you've become this stage name called Miguel. And it's almost like it's almost like what? How did you come up with that kind of strategy? Like it's just a really really odd one, but you've ex- executed it really well. When I come back from New Zealand, I had some friends coming back from this place. I was in New Zealand. I want to come back to, to work, of course, in the UK, because I'm living there, young guy. I'm only 18. And I think to myself, this is going to be shit house for me if I want to get <laughs> for playing the music, for, for DJing and stuff like this. So the character Miguel was not born there. What happened was I, I came back from New Zealand when I was 18 because I wanted to DJ and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to you know, I'd, I'd had some success there, but I knew that, you know, and at that time, if you wanted to be, you know, more successful, you needed to be in Europe as far as I was concerned. And we're so far away in New Zealand, however fantastic it is, and it is fantastic, you know, it's a, a wonderful country and a, some of my, my favourite people, in fact, probably 98% of my favorite people are in New Zealand. Um, but I came back in, I, and I was only in Edinburgh. I came back and stayed with my granny and stuff. And I was only there for like two months. And I, I said, you know, this is this is not really for me. And I, I we jumped ship. One of my pals, one of my old schoolmates from Pennycook, uh, we went to live in, in Palma in Mallorca when I was 19, just turned 19. And uh, we went and worked and we DJed out there. We DJed at BCM. And we did it uh, I did a place called La Luna in Palma, right. which was a Spanish club. Uh, but so I would have been maybe one of the only, certainly one of the y- only young non-Spanish speaking DJs playing in there. That was a more of an older thing, and it was in Palma, not so much in Magaluf, which was the BCM factor, which was which was more nuts. And so, basically, that was a. I think that time spending the two years there, or a year and a half, or whatever it was, it was similar to that. You know, I think that was where the character Miguelito was born because, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, think it up there, but I think that was the, excuse me, I think that was the sort of impetus was there because it, I, I used to go, I used to live in a hotel. And when I was going out to DJ at night, there was a, a wee guy, a wee Spanish guy who was the hotel animator. And he'd be there all the time. I'd see him all around the hotel if I was ever about. He'd be doing skittles with the kids. He'd have them in the pool with a sort of, uh, you know, water polo. And he used to do the school discos. And he worked, he worked alone, this wee guy. And he was like, he must have been his mid-50s. And he had this big fucking womb broom, a big cockbuster moustache. Um, I think he was, I think it was, I'm sure, I'm sure it was Pedro. I'm sure it was called Pedro. He's a lovely wee guy. Uh, and, you know, was, uh, so I used to buy it. You know, I used to buy him a San Miguel or whatever, and, and chat away to him. And he was so, what I loved about him so much, he was so deliciously sort of um, kind of substandard. Do you know what I mean? He was he was like, you know, he just, he was very warm, but just fairly shit. Yeah, and he said, uh, <laughs> everyone loved him. But, you know, so he used to do this disco, and, it was, you know, and he'd, be, he'd have this, he was only about five foot, five foot one, five foot two, really sort of diminutive guy. And he'd, uh, you know, he'd come and do the disco. So I'd be, I'd have my record box. I'm out to work and having a wee drink and just watching him doing his, his disco in the hotel. Okay, kids, next time. You know, probably for you. Okay, he's going to be your baby one now. He's my baby. He's your baby. 
Let's go, we feel Saturday night. And he used to <laughs> taste as though he's KFC. And he used to run, he used to run from behind the console. And it was fucking far, like he did 15 seconds of running to the console. And then he forgot that he, he didn't press play. So it's like that. So going back to press play on the uh, CD player or whatever it was, we're talking 93. It was a I'm pretty sure it was CD, CDs then, or it might have actually been a belt drive turntable before he'd have to run back and start ding, 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 and start doing the sat. And I was just, I was pissing myself. I was just like, this is fucking brilliant. It was, it was. Mate, it's like know, a, it's like a Spanish David Brent. It was in some ways, but but like a mixture of a Spanish David Brent and say uh, Barry Chuckle, yeah, okay. from the Chuckle yeah. Brothers. Yeah, that was yeah. a combination. He was like that. He was like a Spanish Barry Chuckle, David Brent sort of combination, and um, and effectively, you know that that it wasn't then, but that character and and the way that he 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 was he was very warm, lovely, lovely guy. He was just a little bit. Shit, you know, he was just a bit, well, more than a little bit. He was quite a substandard thing, and it, uh, it's quite. And then, so, you know, when I, I DJed there for some time and, and lived there, and then when I came back to the UK, I started doing this character Miguel, and it was, um, and I used to DJ and play percussion and tell stories like, uh, you know, I used to sing over the breaks, yeah. So if there was a break in a record, because I'd always been an MC, I'd always been a singer, I'd been in bands in New Zealand. Uh, and sort of hip hop outfits and stuff, but kid stuff, you know. We were very young, um, but we still had, um, you know, we still were doing. I've been a b boy, a first generation UK b boy, you know, since 1983. I was dancing since I was seven, really, and um, um, you know. And so that was the thing. It was a, it was a way of. Uh, so when I started doing that character, I'm pretty. Sure, I didn't realize it then, but it was kind of not based on. But that was the impetus for it. Was this character, we Pedro, and Miguel was a was a thing. It was just a way for me to try and, um, you know, for, for me to try and sort of get be able to represent a few of my talents, right, and do it, but do it in a little bit of a left field ways, and and just to create something that was fun, you know, there's something that was that was fun and a laugh. I watched. I watched dance music go up its own arse in the mid nineties a bit, a lot of chin stroking and a lot of, you know, and I was just like, I was like, you know, we're just having a laugh, having a dance, you know, getting pissed up and just, you know, actually having a giggle. Yeah. I missed that. And so that was, that was sort of partly the, partly the reason I, I sort of invented, you know, Miguel and then the Cuban brothers, I brought in, a, you know, my first DJ who was with me was a guy called Tim King. He played a, and I played. I invented a character called Richie Paloco for him. He had already had very long hair and a very strong growth, and so to, his look was very strong. And uh, yeah, and so that was a, that was the initial setup for the Cubans. And so the um, yeah, that, it, it came it came from that really. It was um, it came from living in Mallorca at that time, and um, and then coming back to the UK and thinking, what can I do? What you know, I wanted to. I obviously wanted to DJ. I wanted to represent also the other stuff that I did, you know? And so, yeah. because I'd always done characters. So I'd always, I'd always like taken the piss. I'd always been a sort of a natural mimic. And, um, and so I decided to, that this was a, you know, this was a, a good way to sort of make A, earn a crust and B, have some fun, you know? Yeah. What's really impressive is just how you amalgamate 
all of it together. I mean, I've listed it earlier, but like when I was seeing you on stage, like doing the accent, you know, funny, body popping, break dancing, singing, doing the MC, and you do it so smoothly, mate. You really, really do, and you're so you're so convincing. Like people must come over to you and say, like, talk to you as Miguel, and then obviously you're talking as your. Your, oh, yeah. it, was like, it was like me. I come over and I was like, hang on a minute. You're from Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, of course. I mean, but that, I mean, that's lovely. But it, I should hope so, you know, after 24 years, you want to, I'd be fucking healing myself in the balls if I wasn't, uh, if, you know, if I wasn't convincing because I've been doing it for a long time. And to see, I worked in Cuba a lot uh, as in, you know, and spent a lot of time and so they have an arrows and and outside as well. We did a lot of stuff in in Camagüey, Pinal de Rio, um, all over. All over, they all speak to me rapid, rapid, rapid Spanish, thinking that I'm one of the countrymen, and I can pick it up. And I know, uh, but I know I have to say, you know, uh, you know, uh, lo siento, mi español is uh, you know, because I, I'm I'm not fluent, and which is slightly embarrassing. Uh, I'm I'm good enough to get away conversationally, but I'm not fluent. And um, but you know the the nice thing is that to be accepted by Cubans and to be actually um, you know you know they they sort of extol us. You know, like it, it's it's that kind of thing where they sort of get it. It's like there's never been a there's never been a question mark over if we were misrepresenting the culture. They understand as performers as dancers that we're up and we're at it. And they understand as a comic that, um, you know, as a character is that I'm playing this. Everyone knows Miguel, this guy who sort of fancies himself, you know, and he's sort of, you know, is a little bit, you know, you don't know if he's gay. You don't know if he's straight. You don't know if <laughs> what he's in, but you just know he's into it, you know, and that was, that was what, I, that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted it, you know, the whole, the whole thing that they, I gave Miguelito, I hate to talk about myself in third character, sorry, third person. I don't want to sound like a knob, but no, you don't. I, yeah, it's good. I, I gave, <laughs> I gave the character a full history. You know, it was uh, basically that he'd been involved and he'd been involved. He got a daytime TV show in Cuba, one of the first ones in the mid eighties, and then you know this popularity. He'd, you know, he'd been a, he'd been a bit of a swordsmith, and he got invited to be involved in some, you know some adult film activity and also he'd been he'd been one of the favorite um you know the show had been syndicated to colombia and paraguay and uruguay uruguay and stuff like that and so he'd become a favorite you know entertainer of the of the cartels and so that the whole thing was that you know during the 80s and that i was being flown out to do shows for them at the various villas and stuff like that and I've been involved in the porn industry. Um, but what had happened was that I, one of the uh, starlets in one of the films and ended up being the daughter of the, minister, the Cuban Minister of Agriculture. So I had two choices. One was prison or one, the other one was exile. And so that was the reason that I came to, to Europe uh, in, in the early 90s was I didn't really have a choice. And so that was a sort of, a, that was the whole history that I'd given Miguel and the fact that you like he was, you know, sort of, um, you know, just very brazen and very, it's like that kind of thing. Like, you know, that's what I, that's what I learned about Latin culture from being, from living there and then spending so much time in Cuba. Uh, 
that was what I like about it is that like you know the less things are left to the imagination like you know you know if someone's feeling something they'll fucking tell you about it and mm. and, and it's brilliant like that and I lo- and I'm the same I like that's one of the things that I take from it I'm always already like that but you know I think it's good it's like it's you, you know it's that kind of thing where with that kind of attitude that's where I, why a party can sort of you know like literally you've got five people there the next thing there's some music you know five minutes later there's some drink you know literally three minutes later there's a there's your party and that yeah. party can go and that happened to me so many times in cuba and it's been something that i've always you know extolled and something that i was i was into and so that was why that was kind of the reason that the way that it came around and so you know and we were lucky it was quite meteoric steve in the sense of i started in this little bar I've been DJing in other places, but I started doing the Cubans thing, particularly in this jazz cellar bar called the Cellar Bar Number One, and right. it's in it's in Edinburgh, uh, and it's on Chamber Street, just opposite the the the, Ed, the Scottish National Museum, and it's a proper jazz bar. It's a basement, probably about a hundred and only a hundred and forty-eight cap, great wee place, and I started doing shows there on a Tuesday night with my DJ, right. and I had percussion, and it and really. The first night was busy, uh, nice and busy. And then the next Tuesday, it was sold out. And the next Tuesday, it was sold out. And it just, you know, it went from taking 300 quid on a Tuesday night to taking, you know, three grand plus on a Tuesday night. And it was students, jazz aficionados, and club people. Because I was involved in clubs. I promoted other clubs that everyone's like, Mike's doing this new thing. He's doing this, you know, this Miguel thing, the Cubans thing. And so everyone used to come and support me on a Tuesday because we all sort of, you know, we all knew each other. We all promoted nights or DJ nights. And so, yeah, and that was it, man. It was really meteoric. And and from that, we just got booked for other stuff. And within, literally within three months, I had a, a residency in Amsterdam at the Matzo Club in Amsterdam. Uh, and I had a, um, a residency in Ibiza. We were out doing manumission with Mike and Claire. And just invites everywhere. I was at the, the car flight in, 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 in Zurich. And we were out in New York playing on Randall Island. And, at, you know, at the what was the first, um, the first box, you know, the box nightclub. Yeah, yeah. It's just around the corner from here. Is it? Right. Yeah, so the, 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 the first yeah. one in New York, like we were, you know, we were we were, you know, one of the first acts at the box in New York. And um yeah, and so just and, and playing in, you know, we just had loads of these little sort of mad little residencies. Uh and and of course in London as well, the talk of London, yeah. and, uh, and then the Empire Rooms, uh, the Embassy Room story, which is now the big spearmint rhino on right. uh, but that was a that was a beautiful old. That was the one of the last of the musical venues with a flocked wallpaper and the uh, you know the full yeah, the, into the ladies' room. They had a full makeup room, which was like you know literally forty meters by forty meters and all the sort of gilted mirrors and everything. Amazing venues. And this was a this is this is around 90, 99, 98, 99 and uh, and two thousand uh, was when we were sort of we were all. I mean. We've been lucky enough to be all, all over the place all the time. But it was a real sort of, um, it was really surprising and very exciting for me at that age. I must have been 22 to be playing a character who was 52 
and I'm be I'm making myself up to look like this this you know old we're not old but mature Cuban guy this mature Cuban entertainer and because I think that um, because I think that the sort of the, the banter and the way that I used the humor was always warm you know what I mean it, the joke was always on me or on one of the one of my bandmates rather yeah. it was never mean you know what I mean it was never it, it never you know. I would take the piss, but it was never mean spirited. It was always done in a warm, in a warm fashion, you know. So rather than make someone feel uncomfortable, you know, I could do a gag about them, but effectively they're getting the kudos of me talking about them in a warm way. So it's kind of, do you know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like if one of, like Irvin, Irvin Welsh, who's I'm friends with now, uh, you know, Irvin was one of the first guys to come down to the cellar bar number one. And, uh, and obviously I did some uh, some great stories about Irvin and that. And although we, I knew him, we'd, we'd met before because we were both Hibs fans. And, uh, you know, we'd both been at Easter Road at the same time. But it was like, uh, you know, it was that kind of thing during that time where some, you know, reasonably successful luminaries would come to the show uh, and I'd fucking, you know, um, I'd take the piss, but in a nice way, you know, it was always, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fairly well read and, and by no means, uh, you know, by no means like a super intelligent cat, nothing like that, but I'm fairly well read. And so, you know, I, I have a, a wee bit of knowledge about everything. And so it's good. It's handy. If you're going to be, if you're going to be sort of, you know, I don't, for want of better terminology, a gobshite, you've got to have a little bit of nose to be able to fucking carry it off. You know what I mean, bro? Yeah. Do you know, there was one moment, I mean, there were so many fucking funny moments where you was on stage and uh, there was one moment we was in Miami, Ford Lauderdale at the Guitar Hotel, Hard yeah. Rock. The awards was happening. Sadly, we couldn't be outside because it was pissing down the rain. I mean, what, what was our chances? Yeah, and yeah, anyway, yeah. I, was, I was standing there in the booth and you were talking, just taking segments of just what you just said there to me. Is Miguel straight? Is he, is he, is he gay? You know, you know, there's, there's, there's this question marks over him and you come out with a gag where, where I don't know whether it was you being kind of creative on the spot or resourceful, but you went, you said something along the lines of, yeah, I just done my, my first penis reduction and now I've just done my, my second and my wife, she's really happy, but my boyfriend is really pissed off. And then you kind of (laughs) talk to someone in the crowd and Mate, I, I, I don't know whether it was just because of the timing of it or what, but the way you delivered it was so funny. So on that note, I mean, how do you come up with these gags and what is kind of the best gags that you got there, uh, Michael? Oh, Steve, I, know, I mean, it's never, I don't, you know, I don't prepare anything. Uh, that's maybe to my downfall in some ways. I don't know, but, you know, when I started, I never, I, I never wanted to work the circuit. I never wanted to work as a stand-up. To me, going up and down the country and all that for whatever, you know, 250, 300 quid. Uh, it never appealed to me. I always, uh, you know, and I respect the stand-up uh, community. And of course, there's, you know, some brilliant, but I always wanted to do, um, I always wanted to do, to do music and to have a, you know, to have an outfit, a band that was funny rather than, rather than a, a comedy band. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To be an outfit that was entertaining, that was funny, rather to be a comic who did music. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. music was my first love and that. And so I never I, I never really write anything um, um, as far as material goes. Uh, but I, 
you know, so a lot of stuff is either, you know, improv improvised on the spot or some stuff, you know, has been improvised and I've remembered it and used it again. And then, you know, because of, you know, being an entertainer, being a performer for such a long time, you take on a lot of stuff. And, and so it's that kind of thing, you know, but I, I've never been a guy to sort of write out, this is what I'm going to say here. And da, 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 da. there's a certain formula that you have in a show um, where I try and improvise as much because that's where the fun lies for me. You know, if it, that's where the fun lies, you know, for me, because hopefully if I'm having fun, that was the way I've always looked at it, then it's going to come across to the, to the audience. And that's going to be an extra, you know, an extra vibe, you know, because, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of performance who are just going through the motions and I, I can relate to it because after, you know, you've done what I've done, you know, whatever it is, fucking 10,000 shows over the years, I can relate to it, but I never want to be that guy. And, uh, you know, and of course, there's been sometimes when I've not been very well, I might have been ill or I might have been extraordinarily fucking hungover, uh, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Where you're like that. Please, God, just get me fucking through the next hour. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, and so, uh, and you know what I mean? And so I can relate to it 100 percent. But I also think that, you know, that's why, you know, I've, I've never performed, you know, certainly never, you know, I don't. I certainly never performed high. I don't get, I don't, I like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, as you could probably tell by looking at me, so I, I like a kick of the ball. I like a laugh and I like a kick of the ball. I like a bit of nefarious, but I never do it uh, when I'm going to be on stage because the, 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 to me, there's the disconnect, you know, and a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people find that, you know, they, that a bit of confidence or a bit of um, whatever they want to call it, but je ne sais quoi is within that. But for me, I like to do the show with a couple of drinks and then, you know, whatever happens after is what happens after. But yeah, for me, that's, that's the thing. So, and sorry, it's a long roundabout answer, Steve. The one thing you'll get with an interview with me is not, I will never give you a one sentence answer for fuck's sake. And yeah, the answer is it, it, it just, sometimes it's divine, you know, sometimes that, you know, you, you just, you grab something and when, when you're in the flow, you know, you know, you've talked about it yourself about being in the flow then it's almost like if you're in tune, then you're going to be comical regardless, yeah? And then sometimes it's stuff that has been said at another show or I've remembered and something and it's appropriate to be used at that time. But that's that's how it is. I never write anything. I'm not, it's not like a, it's not like a stand-up thing. It's not, I would never refer to notes, but also after all this time, yeah, and as I say, I just say all this time, it's quite a long time, you know, uh, to to have been doing what I do. Then you know, I, I've got you know quite a bit of material under my belt, and so I can sort of draw draw on quite a wide. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure. Look, I mean, the Cuban Brothers. You got Yo Benita, an album A to Z. You do a lot of gigs, a lot of festivals. You just mentioned before we started. You're going to be traveling to Italy. I mean, you've traveled so many places around the world. It just seems like you're on the go all the time. And as I mentioned, you know, you're, you know, the funny guy, you're the MC. But over 25 years, like everybody in business, anyone in show business, anyone pursuing a career, yeah. there's the ups and downs. There must have been times where shit is going kind of wrong. And I'm quite interested to know what was that and how did you get over it? Mm. You just... 
you've frozen up again there. I mean, I just, I just, I just lost the last bit there. What was that last bit? Sorry. You know, like in 25 years, shit sometimes goes wrong. Yeah. So I wanted to know from someone like you, who's a performer. Yeah. What actually went wrong? Can you name certain scenarios and how do you, how do you like kind of pivot and overcome those moments? Sheesh. That's a good question, man. It's a good question. Well, yeah, Steve, I mean, to be honest, we haven't really had a, we have not had a lot of things go wrong. I mean, I, I feel really lucky as far as that goes. We're not, you know, I've always tried to conduct myself as a gentleman. And I think that, you know, me and the, I've always encouraged it and my bandmates and sort of, you know, the guys that, that I've worked with. And I've always encouraged that thing of, you know, being, having a bit of emotional intelligence, you know? And so, because... Basically, if you're there to do a job, man, you're sort of there to... My thing is to be a fucking gentleman, get in, give people a good time uh, and have a laugh and then, you know, drop your shoulder. Or if you're hanging on, hang on and have some fun as well. We haven't had... I, didn't mean to, I think maybe the only... The worst thing might have been the bloody pandemic. And so, you know, that... I mean, that was absolutely brutal. And... Um, you know, to be to be told that, you know, we, that we weren't, um, you know, we weren't valid, or that, that you know, to try and get a new job outside of the arts, and that I wasn't going to be given any money and stuff like that. So I'm not. What I'm not going to do is go into a tirade because uh, because I was super angry about it. But yeah, I thought that that was dealt with really badly. Yeah, I pay taxes as do you know, and I've been legit for a long time. I didn't need to be legit, you know. <laughs> I've been legit and I wasn't I wasn't I'll be honest with you I wasn't legit initially you know fuck that I mean I had uh, you know several trainer boxes under the bed and all that kind of shit if this if the IRS is listening get fucked because I've paid you back uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not even the IRS is it what do they call it it's uh, Inland Revenue <laughs> Inland Revenue I just I can't even say their name I'm that fucked off with them um, <laughs> But yeah, man, and so yeah, that that was that was fairly brutal. That's where things going wrong. But I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, prof pr the professionality side of what I do, I've always been, I've always thought that was important, you know. And so I haven't, I haven't got myself, or we haven't got ourselves in any in any bother as far as that goes, you know. So when things go wrong, I mean, there's been minor things like you know, I've been arrested many times in America, and arrested a couple of times in other places, and you know for you know, for minor infractions of what some people would deem uh, illegal, uh, illegal, illegal contraband and illegal oh. substances and all that kind of shit. And then, you know, and, and obviously on the gumball, uh, you know, so many fines for sort of not wrong driving, but sort of naked driving and then actually, you know, naked surfing on, on various vehicles while someone else is driving. Uh, and you know, and B, I got arrested with um, with you know Ryan Dunn uh, from Jackass. Rest in peace, really wicked guy Ryan. And we we both got lifted in Larry Flint Strip Club, you know, in New Orleans in the Big Easy. We were up. He's Larry Flint Strip Club has got the longest dancing pole in the world, so it's like right. a big forty-five foot dancing pole that goes up uh, fifty foot, forty-five foot, goes up three stories. And we were up there at sort of half five in the morning, pissed as wizards, uh, naked, me and Ryan up there. And uh, obviously the girls, there was one girl above us and one below us. And we were in the middle there doing our shit. And 
they were having fun. We were having fun. We were, we were, and then, but they obviously the security didn't like that, and you know they went and got the the state troopers. Uh, the sort of uh, the the big easy coppers came in. There was a security of trying to get us down. We like that, you know. How about this? How about fuck off? And um, <laughs> we had a drink and a wee, a wee bit leery. And so then the <laughs> the copper, God bless him, he put his gloves on and climbed up the pole and pistol whipped me down. Oh um, my god! Yeah, yeah. And I've still got. I mean, I can still see here. It was a beauty. Uh, you know, ten stitches in my napper. Because he pistol with me because we, we were naked when we came down and covered in claret, chucked in the thing. That was Gumball 2009 or 2006, I don't know, one of them. But you know, stupid stuff like that. That went, but that's like to me, that's part of the rich tapestry. But yeah, man, as far as things going wrong, I mean, I, I can honestly say that it's a, it's been good, man, as far that things going wrong was not being able to. Not being able to earn, being a family man, you know, three children, not being able to earn and then being told that, you know, that we were sort of invalid or, you know, that, you know, that we were kind of, uh, you know, that we should consider retraining and start, uh, you know, thinking about something else during the pandemic and during these, these lockdown times and everything. And I was, you know, 100% against all that and, 100, and I was 100% against the Tory government and the way that they dealt with it and the um, the multitude of dishonesty yeah. and lies and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I was I, I was really, I was a bit of an angry man for some time. And so rather than just being depressed, uh, that not being able to work and not having an outlet, I was actually uh, furious uh, at the fact that they, that they were be- being able to get away with it and everybody was going for it. Yeah, I was like, oh, "Are you fucking mental?" Because a lot of punters are like that. You know that that was that was the thing to me. I was like, oh, "Oh, really?" You know, or they're getting eighty percent of their salary, so they'll they'll keep stooping. I'm like, "That, listen, guys, you're mental if you think this is not going to come back." And uh, and here we are. So anyway, this is not a political thing, and I'm I'm not. But as far as it goes, man, you know that that was that's been the worst thing that's happened to me in my career, and it's only like effectively a year ago. Or yeah. nine months ago. Apart from that, there hasn't been, I, you know, I'm lucky there hasn't been many, um, you know, many negative things. It hasn't all gone wrong. Uh, but I've made sure that I've worked. Uh, I, I've worked at it, man. I, I, you know, I've built and cemented relationships with uh, with promoters and with punters and with um, you know people in the industry. Uh, and sort of worked, you know, worked at keeping keeping those relationships. You know, like uh, it's important to me. You know, and it's important that we that you know for me, it's a, you're, you're only as good as your reputation. And you yeah. you might have heard it's a cliche. You're only as good as your last show. And you know that, and, and it is a little bit of a cliche. But both of those things ring true. Yeah. And so, you, you know, I would hate anyone to have a sort of you know like a thing. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't that that to me doesn't compute if anyone, you know, I'm pretty sure, you know, that maybe I, I might have had an altercation with somebody or whatever over my career, but I always want to go away from a show or from a, a situation as, um, you know, as a nice guy or someone who's tried to be the nice guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for that, sure. But, that, but also, that doesn't mean I'm a mug. And and I have, and it's appropriate to talk about it, but of course I've reached out and touched 
first, but you know, it's 24 years. And yeah. and and during that time, there has been people tried to mug me off. Of course there has. And you know, and me being from where I'm from and growing up where I grew up, you know, it doesn't, you know, I don't I don't make threats. We just get on with it. But thankfully, it's been very few and far between. Um, I know this is going to sound cliche as well, but your net worth is determined by your network. And, you know, looking at the people that you're around, what you've achieved, etc., cetera, it's, it's fantastic. And looking, doing some research on the internet, the likes of Elton John, Richard Branson, you've met, you mentioned people, you know, in the Gumball Rally, Jackass, etc. I mean... Some of these people that you've been rolling with or connected with, they're, they're pretty, pretty high-profile people, some powerful people. How does that make you feel, Mike? I don't know. What, I, I don't know. I, I, never, um, I never really had my head turned by, by, by other people's fame or success. Um, I guess um, uh, I, I got a bit of a... Um, you get a bit of a personal... You know, you get a bit of a personal buzz getting to meet some of these, uh, you know, people who have, who have been, you know, who are luminaries in their, in their field, you know what I mean? Who, are, who are, have been successful artists in what they do. But it never, it never sort of, it never turned my head. It was never like, my whole thing was if I was going to do the same, put the same effort and the same show, you know, a wee sort of thing, you know, for 15 postal workers as it would be for 15,000 or some of the bigger ones, 50,000 punters at a festival um it certainly was um it's certainly nice to be invited to do these things you know on necker island and to meet richard and all that we did a lot of stuff for richard branson we did all this stuff for virgin his virgin parties uh for his virgin staff at his place and then doing parties out at necker and obviously with uh, with Elton as well, uh, it's wicked. It's a lovely a lovely invite to get, and it's nice to it's nice that you know that these people think, oh man, they they think as much of you as I want you to come down and entertain me and my friends, and so yeah, that's great. It's 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 ace, but it's never, you know, it's never. I never, you know, it's not never. I would never value my worth on those types of shows. They happen, and that's great. And um, you know, and, and and it's wonderful. And then you know, we we do whole so many different types of show. You know, from clubs to gigs in our own right in venues to festivals, which has been, you know, the past fifteen years summertime. That's that's the the, the biggest sort of stuff we do. That's the biggest work is during that time between now, between May and October festivals. But we also do lots and lots of private things as well, and and so yeah, it's nice. It's it's nice to meet people who are you know, it's nice to meet people who are famous and all that. But it's never been, you know, I never it's never made me go like oh you know that's that's not how I found you know I yeah. was. It's I tell you to be honest though, Steve, it's been handy because if you have that reputation of being an entertainer for somebody you know who's who has that type of fame and has that type of respect, then it, it, it can give you, uh, it can add a little bit of value to to you, you know, and that's yeah. that's definitely that's definitely been um, that's definitely been the case. So yeah. as far as that, so as far as me going, yeah, 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 I'm not, I'd never, uh, you know, superstardom and that doesn't really turn my head, and it doesn't. 
but it certainly it certainly has helped me uh, to have friends and you know dare I say it fans and in, in, in these sort of places you know what I mean yeah I mean listen as you just said uh, you, you probably uh, get your kicks or your stimulation from multiple different things but if you've got Sir Richard Branson, Elton John, and all these other successful individuals who are fans, followers, getting you to do private gigs, etc., it gives you validation that you're doing something great. True. And it gives you that kudos. I think that was a word you used earlier. And also yeah. that brand equity, you know, which can lead on to other things. So tell me a bit more about how you got involved with the Gumball Rally, Maximilian Cooper, uh, Michael. It was... Um... It was, I think it was, uh, must have been 2002, we did, we just got invited to come and do one of the parties, and uh, for, I think it was 2002, and was it 2001? Cheers, salut. I wish you had a drink, pal. Sorry, man. <laughs> Mate, I, um, I'm on this teetotal vibe at the moment. Um, Are you? Yeah, four weeks Good into man. it. Yeah. How long? Four weeks? Four weeks into it, I mean, when I was doing my boxing at the start of the year, quite naturally, I was in boxing camp for like three months, so no drinking. Then I hit Gumball Rally and was out off my head for a good two and a bit weeks because I actually went from Miami to Cuba because originally it was meant to be finishing in Havana. Yeah. And um, I had already paid for my family to go over there. And wow. I didn't have the heart when Max told us that we weren't going. I didn't have the heart to turn around to my wife, my two kids, and my uh, my wife's parents to say, "Hey, do you know that great trip that we're about to take? We're we're not going there anymore." So I ended up going there, and uh, yeah, I was just basically a pissed and a drunk for the whole time. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you got to you know you got to allow it, mate. And certainly, if you've been able to, you know. If you've been able to be teetotal or uh, for four weeks, that's um, that's really good, man. Amazing. I, I would like to do that, uh, but it's uh, I don't know. It's, I'm a publican, son. The last time I tried to tried to give up for a wee while, I think I lasted four days. And uh, I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it at all. But I mean, look, I need to. Uh, I, I got. I was quite fit at the start of the year. And then uh, you know what? I was re- I was down. I was a stone down. And then I, same thing. We went to the states, and a fortnight in the states, I came back. I was a stone heavier, and I haven't and, and I haven't stopped working since then. So that's the thing. I was training daily, and uh, I mean I need I need to I, I I'm not far away from getting it back. But yeah, I've been working that hard that as I get uh, this is one thing, one thing that you get a little bit. Um, a little bit of a home truth. The one thing about after the pandemic, after not doing many shows for two years, is that I have, I'm not recovering as quickly as I used to. You know what I mean? That's one thing that happens with maturity or with age, old age, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, uh, if you're not match fit, then you're taking a little bit, a, a little bit more time to recover. So the training that I was doing when I wasn't working was sound because I, you know, I'm doing that. I do maybe you know, two and a half, three hours in the gym and got myself down to a fairly good fighting weight. Yeah. And then, but now with it, you know, I'm doing about four or five shows a week, sometimes, you know, maybe 10 or 12, if we've been doubling up at BST, we're playing all the high part shows, we were doubling up. And then, then that's the kind of thing where uh, I'm not really, <laughs> I need to recover. So I'm not going to be back in the gym 
So yeah, I put on a, I, I'm carrying a bit again, but it's one of those things. It's I'll well, be able to I'll, I'll be able to sort of get reasonably back in shape, um, just with a bit of a, as you know, if you're a boxer and you're you know you've been training, then it is it's about being uh, you know consistent and basically disciplined, isn't it? I mean that's the thing. My discipline isn't great. Uh, my consistency was good, but it, it, when as soon as we went to Gumball, it all went out the fucking window. <laughs> yeah, mate, me, me too. That that whole uh, kind of ethos of driving all day, party all night, bearing in mind this was my first ever Gumball and I've been following following it as a, as a kid. So I really yeah. like was in awe of being on this kind of rally. I love my yeah. cars. I love the whole show business side of it. I loved you know, the, the money and all the kind of high, high profile people. I just threw myself into it. And I, I remember going from Atlanta to Miami, that was probably one of the best and worst experiences of my life. I was driving in that Lamborghini, which was all wrapped yeah. in a Woodbury House sign, which is my private art gallery here, in Richard Hamilton stop signs, but on the one hour sleep. And I got pulled over by the cops or the feds or whatever, and yeah. we end up getting this fine, but this lady was interrogating me. The only good thing about her interrogating me, not only that I was in America and I was enjoying myself and the summer shining, she was fucking fit. I was looking at her and imagining in my mind, this is a perfect start for a porno movie on the side of a road. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, cause I had one, one hour sleep and I was probably still intoxicated, uh, unfortunately, Oops. My mind was my mom was <laughs> was was wandering around. But um, listen, I, w- I wanted to ask you actually at the start of this conversation that you were you were telling me surprisingly that you knew who Richard Hamilton was, and we are the key advisors to the Richard Hamilton market. I mean, I think if you typed in Richard Hamilton into the internet, our company will come up first, no doubt. So, how come you know so uh, a little bit about Hamilton and the street art movement? Well, I, I mean, you know, I'm a first generation b-boy, so I've been, you know, I was a graph artist, um, not a particularly, not a particularly venerated one, but you know, I, I it, you know, I, I've always been into street art, and so I was, um, you know, a, a big fan of Basquiat, uh, and of course, um, what's his name? Fucking Dave, Keith, uh, Dave. Keith, Keith Haring. Keith. Keith Haring, sorry, Mike, David, David, uh, fucking Davidson. Yeah, I've had a Keith Haring and all that and all the imagery. And so I just knew of, of, of Richard Hamilton being, you know, um, you know, sort of during that same time in, in the 80s, uh, you know, being uh, one of the proto sort of street artists and one the one that who was, you know, really sort of uh, venerated as, as, one of the, as one of the greats. And so without him, as you, you know, I think, you know, without him, there's no Banksy, without him, there's no, um, you know, that he really sort of, you know, was, was big in, in, in the movement of street art in that time, you know, and and it's in some ways that he hasn't actually got the same, I guess, I guess there's, there's not as much respect uh, for people laymen. Right, I mean, laymen, people who aren't involved in the art world, you know, hmm. there are there isn't as much known about Richard as there is Keith, as there is Basquiat, um, and all that kind of stuff, um, because you know his his sort of stuff is 
is probably a little bit darker and a little bit more left field, isn't it? But uh, from the people who, you know, I learned from, you know, people who are more into their art that this was, you know, somebody that I should be looking at. And so, and if I, if there was a chance of collecting this, you know, I, I needed to get a couple of pieces if it's all possible. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, it's great stuff, but I had no idea that that, that you were representing his stuff, you know, at all. Yeah. We, uh, so I, a bit of story about me. I got approached in 2014 by a very large art dealer who used to be Richard Hamilton's former manager, dealer, and kind of agent. My background is raising money for investments. And he said, look, have you ever raised money for collectible investment grade art? I said, no, I've never done it, but I'm pretty sure I could do it. He said, I represent this guy known by the New York Times as the godfather of street art. Have you heard of Banksy? I said, yeah, of course. He said, well, look, this guy is called Richard Hamilton. He's affiliated to Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring. That's his predecessors. There's a documentary coming out back in 2014. It's now out called The Shadow Man on Amazon Prime, which is unbelievable and he said look the reason why he hasn't got to the same heights as Jean-Michel Basquiat Keith Haring is two reasons one he didn't conform with the art market and two he didn't die and basically he said to me without trying to sound morbid this guy has been addicted to drugs for 35 years he's got cancer he's got many other problems he's a ticking time bomb he's going to die but the moment he dies prices are going to have tenfold and truth to his word that's what happened so we've just been traders market ever since. And we've put on shows. We've done shows in Dubai, Mexico City, Spain, the world famous Archie Gallery. We've published books. We've done the most amount of content. We've done a documentary. I mean, we've really immersed ourselves in this market. Now we've got over 500 pieces under management. We're about to move into Banksy's former gallery in Sackville Street, where he used to be at a gallery called Laz Inc. And yeah, like man. We we I know are. Banksy, I, know, I know Banksy well, so I know I know exactly where you are, and I know yeah. uh, uh, that's, that's amazing, man. I mean, and but uh, you know, can I ask you, coming from a, a place uh, of more of raising finance, where you where you an art lover? Is this is this an, it, was it a completely new? When I say an art lover, were you appreciative of that kind of stuff, or was it a whole new game when you came into it? I, my former business partner, I would say, was more art savvy than I was. Um, don't get me wrong. I liked art and I was a bit of a passive, very small time collector. Yeah. No one that I wasn't a serious art collector by any stretch. And I wasn't, you know, on the weekends researching artists, but I consider myself as a salesperson. So you take away the podcast, you take away the business, you take away the gallery, you take away all this other stuff. The skill set that I think I possess is is selling, yeah? And yeah. I think in order to be a good salesperson, if you've got a good narrative to go on and if you've yeah. got a good product and you've got a great backstory and you've got this history, it allows you as a salesperson to convey a message in a certain way. And the, the moment that myself and Hamilton, the narrative, met, I was like, fuck me, this is my calling. And it, and it was. And... I've got to be honest, we've done really well as a brand. Um, I've obviously learned along the way uh, since being in these markets since 2014, a lot of other stuff. I've now become a collector of not only Hamilton, but multiple di different artists, including Banksy and Black Lerat and loads of other, you know, cool artists, Ben Iron, et cetera. Um, Amazing, man. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's gone, it's gone really Fantastic. well. And we're about to step shit up. So, um, yeah.
and and Gumball has given us a platform uh, to connect with people, to sell art, and to do some content and podcasts. It's been great. And do you know what? I, I know you couldn't make it to the studio today, but I would love it. So, whenever you you get this down moment, um, come over to the studio because I think you'll be you'll be really impressed. I'd love to. I'd love to. I'm, I'm going to make it. Um, I will make it a priority before um, before autumn comes round. But yeah, it's a, it's the busiest time of the year. But I'd love to, man. You can. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love you to show me around, and then maybe see if we can knock out a fucking deal of some sort. Do you know what I mean? Or something. Uh, lovely. <laughs> if you if you haven't seen uh, the show, we'll try and work out something, mate. I mean, you know what I mean. Uh, it might have to be like I do a couple of performances for a piece. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not too handy with the hirees just now. But yeah, that's great, man. It's impressive. I'm. Um, that's wicked, man. I didn't. I didn't. I really didn't know when. I, when when first speaking to you that that was your game that you're working in the. Excuse me, in the art field is certainly. Yeah. As a dealer, as, as a representative, a representative. Um, what a vibe, and so. And what part of London? I mean, look, I, I don't want to. I don't want to turn the tables on you. But where are you from? What part of London are you from? So originally, I'm from South London. Uh, my my dad from East Dulwich. Uh, my mum's from Brixton. I was born in uh, King's College Hospital, and I was residing in Tulse Hill. And then my mum and dad were very, very, very firm about me not growing up in that part of London. Um, so they moved us out into Kent on the outskirts of South London. So to places like Bromley, West Wickham, Hayes, Coney Hall. Yep. Um, my mum and dad split up. My dad kind of moved back into towards central London. And I was to and fro in between my mum's house and my dad's house. And then thankfully, you know, finding my way in life and having a few companies. Some of them at the start was really, really you know, just not a success. Um, I thought I was a, su- a success at the start, but then it wasn't so successful. And then I found myself coming into the art market and it's it's been a, a blessing, a blessing really, mate. And um been running my podcast now for four years, got a property company as well and connected to a lot of people. So yeah, it's, it's going good, man. It's going good. It's great, man. Wicked, man. More power to you. Power to you. And as I said, as I said at the start of the interview, I think it's down to, uh, you know, it's, it's down to positive bloody mindedness and uh, you know, in general, uh, you know, bonhomie. You know what I mean? Bonhomie, like uh, you know, it's like it, it, it's it's good. It's important if you want to, you know, you get it. It's like that thing. You've got to if you want to be successful, you've got to communicate and communicate well and uh, and do the business. Definitely. Listen, I've got I've got to split. I've got to ask you one more question. Of course you very, can. It's a very, very simple one, and you can do yeah. a very, very short answer. No worries, man. So when I first started my first business, uh, which was a sales company, I came up with a mantra that I wanted yeah. the sales guys and myself to live by, and it goes like this. Okay. Be, be happy, never content. Now, if I were to ask one of the members of the Cuban Brothers, Michael Keats, <laughs> Be happy, never content. What does that mean to you? Or what does it mean to Miguel? Oh, my God. Sheesh. Well, Miguelito, I think if you're talking to Miguel, it's a different thing. Because Miguel, um, you know, there is a certain type of contentedness that Miguel just has. You know, this is the kind of thing. For Miguel, he's more mature guy. So he's made a lot of money and he's had a lot of different experiences previous. So... You know, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the contentedness is coming with these things that have happened in his life already. You know, big family, 
uh, and you know to be able to make some money and to do some great shows involving in the porn the, the, the porno shows and involved in actual things as well it's no problem for you it's okay for me and so you know I, I've been able to you know scratch all the itches and <laughs> it's been no problem so Miguelito is okay it, it makes sense this uh, statement makes sense for Miguelito but for Mike uh, again excuse me doing the old thing but I, I've got to do it if I'm doing a re- character thing for me i think it's a hundred percent that bruv it's uh like like you say it's like uh, some people some people would say you know that you know that you're going to make you you know you're handing yourself your own arse by never being content or being content in, in that sense you know be you can be happy and content but i think you've, you've hit a nail on the head you can be ca- happy but never content in the sense of you can be content but it's not for me personally I I'm still striving because uh, because I'm you know I'm a family man. I love what I do. Uh, I still think even now after this time that I'm not uh, that the show is you know I've got nothing to prove anymore as far as it goes. But to me, as far as I'm concerned, I still have because uh, you know I've. You know, I'm lucky to do this for a job and all that, but you know, in my heart of hearts, uh, and this is maybe giving too much away. I don't know, but I, I'm just being honest with you. In my heart of hearts, you know, you know, I I, I believe that sort of, you know, I could have been. It, there's still time, and there's still a thing for me to you know to go fully global and to be uh, you know to be the artist or the presenter or the actor um, who is who is well-known everywhere and who's doing good work. To me, it's never been about fame, Steve. You know, I, when I say that to be well-known, I mean that not to be famous. I'm not interested in that kind of thing, but to be respected for good work. Recognised, you know? yeah. Yeah, recognised and sort of to be doing good stuff. You know, I think that it may be in some ways you know, in some ways doing this, I do a lot of different characters, yeah? Uh, some of them you you uh, won't be aware of. And I used to have a show on MTV uh, and I used to have, um, it, you know, I used to have uh, a wee show, there's be a show called Bridge and Allen. It's, it's on the BBC just now, it's on BBC iPlayer, where I play a different character who's a thing. So I do all these different characters and I think that maybe in some ways, you know, the Cubans thing might have scuppered some chances uh, previously. And you know, but uh, in a certain way, it's it's hard to tell yeah. because you know, uh, in in certain times, you know, people want to. It's it's less and less now, to be honest with you. But back a wee while ago, you, people wanted to put you in a box. You know, what what are you? Are you a band? You know, are you a singer? Are you a comedian? Are you an actor? Uh, you know, and they wanted to fucking box it off. And because I've always been an all-rounder, you know, one of, and in my mind, I'm probably one of the last of the all-rounders, yeah? Uh, you know, somebody who could turn his hand and, and be comfortable in that sort of thing. And, you know, a, a contemporary, you know, a contemporary version of a showman who, um, and so that kind of thing, it's, so I think I'm going around the houses now. What I was trying to say was that, yes, I'm happy and I, I'm very, and I, and I count my blessings daily. Because I'm I'm lucky. I've got a, I'm happily married, which is amazing for 15 years to a, a wonderful Australian woman, and I've got three daughters. I'm very happy with that. And work 
outside of the pandemic. We're back. It's on fire. I'm busy. I've got a, a wonderful outlet. But yes, I'm always striving for something more uh, and something a bit, you know, I, I'm always striving to to professionally just, you know, just to push the envelope. I don't want to sit treading water, man. You know, that's the thing. Like, what? who who wants to do that? Like, you know, I, some people might. And I tell you what, if they do, then more power to them as well. I would never, I would never uh, negate that as a as a dream. Like some people are like, look, I've found my, I've found my Valhalla, and I'm happy here. I'm making a living, and I've got a good life. That's fine, and and I, I appreciate that. But yeah, the the whole statement that you made, you know, happy but not but not content, is exactly how I would describe myself. Because as soon as I am content, um, I, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing. But you're you're sort of looking at a thing where I you know I, I want to keep moving, keep moving and sort of grow as much as I can personally, professionally, fucking financially. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say it, bro. Uh, of course. And so that's the thing, man. I think it's a great uh, it's a great question, and I hope I've answered it in a roundabout way. You definitely have. Right. Thank you very much for your time. I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing this back. Look out, on your, look out on your email tomorrow because I'm going to send you an intro, intro to Woodbury House, the Richard Hamilton stuff that we do. Watch the Shadow Man documentary. And remember, to be happy, never content. Keep on doing your thing. You're an absolute superstar. And I can't wait to uh, connect with you again, bro. Steve, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. It's uh, nice to talk to you. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've done a lot, as you can imagine, lots of interviews. Um, but uh, it's nice to connect with somebody who's asking interesting questions and somebody who understands, you know, a wee bit of the ins and outs of my type of uh, dickheadery uh, stroke artistry. It's wicked to speak to you, man. I'll see you soon and we'll get a drink and a meal, uh, a meal and a hookup soon and I'll come and see you at the gallery, yeah? Beautiful. Thank you. God Peace. bless. Enjoy, enjoy your night. Bye-bye. Yeah, same to you, brother. Bye. Nice one, brother. Peace. Peace. <laughs>